This morning's scripture reading comes from the first chapter of the book of Matthew, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they had lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relationships with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Let us pause for a word of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be honorable and acceptable and may glorify you, O God. Amen. So our Advent theme is about singing the story. Each Sunday we honor our ancient carol, and today we honor Joseph Dearest, Joseph Mine. We sang a version of that hymn just now. And the handbell choir will play, will play the tune after the sermon. It was popular in Germany in the 14th and 15th century. Originally it was linked to an anonymous tune, but later in Europe over the 1500s, the Reformation inspired beauty and worship and melodies. And later it was paired with Resonne in Laudibus. This particular carol was used in mystery plays. Mystery plays date back to the 12th and 13th century, so a little older than ours even. <laughs> they helped bridge the gap between the, the Latin liturgy and the lives of the local people. Liturgical dramas were sponsored by the church, and they provided sacred entertainment as an alternative to pagan plays. They told the story of the season in a vernacular language. If you were to read the verses of Joseph Dearest, Joseph Mine, you would see how the first verse is sung by Mary. Joseph Dearest, Joseph Mine, help me cradle the child divine. And then Joseph in the second verse responds to her. Gladly, dear one, lady mine, help I cradle the child of thine. Each verse is meant for a person in the nativity to sing the innkeeper, the shepherds, and others until the story is told. And the chorus is sung by the congregation as a way of including all of them into the play. So the chorus, the um, original chorus, he came among us at Christmas time, at Christmas time in Bethlehem. Men shall bring him from far and wide, love's diadem. Jesus, Jesus, lo, he comes, loves and saves and frees us. A perfect carol to choose for the lighting of the Advent candle of love. 
In our text today, we also hear the story of Joseph. The only Christmas story to include Joseph is found in Matthew. Joseph, as the story goes, found out about Mary's pregnancy and he had to make a decision. In this story, Matthew wants to be sure that the listeners understand that Joseph was a righteous man. Righteous is doing the right thing and being in right relationship with God. And we know that historically, someone betrothed could be stoned for being unfaithful. Feeling that pressure all around him, he seeks to do the right thing. He's torn between this strict adherence to the letter of the law and the supreme demand of love. And he makes a decision to send her quietly away, to save her life and her dignity. Not an easy decision. Then an angel visits Joseph in a dream, and not only is he asked to take Mary as his wife, he is asked to name the child, which means he accepts him as his own and to accept him into the Davidic line. The angel reminds Joseph of the verse in Isaiah that reads, Look, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which is God with us. He remembers that verse and now knows what it means for his own life. This part of the nativity reminds us that Joseph is really a minor player, but oh, so crucial. He listens to the angel and to his heart, even though others demand him to follow the letter of the law. Rather than listen to the fears of his mind, he let the dreams of his heart lead him. However, he doesn't violate the, the convention to be politically rebellious, or to know his own goodness. He does it for the love of God. The angel says, I know this is not what you expected, but it's going to be okay. God is about to do something wonderful, despite the fact that according to Jewish custom and law, you are in a socially unacceptable place. Joseph had to trust this strange news. He had, to, he had to see Mary and to hear Mary, and he had to believe her. He had to see the angel and hear the angel and believe the angel in his dream. He had to trust God, even though the results were unpredictable. It wasn't easy. No pretty nativity picture here. No, it's a, a crucial axial time in history. Axial being a time that is changing directions, rooted in the past, but heading off in a totally different place. Axial time. Axial times are hard to foresee and to predict. Oh, God is always doing a new thing. We know that. But axial time is confusing. And for Joseph, it was walking that, that thin line of who he is supposed to be following the law and who he is compassionate and loving soul. His action of cradling the Son of God is the beginning of the new way. So axial that the era splits and was known as the Christian era and now known as the common era. We are in an axial time. Will we survive climate change? Our American Constitution is being tested other global norms are shifting. White nationalism is alive and well. Trust in anything is at an all-time low. There are no clear answers lying before us. 
Will the institution of the church survive? And if it does, will we recognize it? Even the nature of our congregation is in question. With the changes in staff and a resignation of a lead pastor, we are in axial time. How do we sing a song of love when people turn from the church in disgust? I listened to a lecture by a religious educator named Mary Hess that was shared online from Boston University. She spoke on the topic, finding faith in the maelstrom. She described the maelstrom as turbulence and chaos and confusion. She says, we're buffeted on all sides by fear and anger and outrage. And the most unsettling realization that knowing truth and humanness is always incomplete. She looks for a path that leads through this storm of information. And she describes this path as narrative or story. How do we know which stories to listen to? We ask, are these stories manipulating me? Are they authentic? Do they come from someone we trust? Our digital culture moves quickly, so quickly, that we don't always ask the basic questions. When we move quickly, we rely on past experiences and often in ways in which we are completely unaware. A narrative is valued when it rings with authenticity. Authenticity shapes authority. Authority is the ability to make things happen. In the modern day stories, she noticed that most of them were about individual power and agency. So Mary Hess is doing this, uh, it's her, her dissertation kind of thing. She has a theme, and so she's done all of this analysis of modern stories. So looking at television and movies and things that people tell each other and the way that we tell stories to one another. And what she sees is that it's mostly about individual power and agency. And her conclusion is that this makes sense because people are feeling powerless. The hero, the savior, are the central characters, which also influences our theology. We still want a magical religion which keeps the responsibility with God, performing or not performing. What if this axial change is a transformational religion that asks us to participate and cooperate and to change? That would take more than individual agency and authority. That would take collective agency. This is what she found missing in the narratives of our current culture. When I heard this, I thought, that sounds like common ground for most of our complaints. Many ask, what is my role in this? How does my vote count? Why doesn't Congress act on what the people want? Where is my collective agency? How come I didn't know about the reorganization? Who is making these decisions? We are a congregational church. We are living in traumatized times. Trauma is when we encounter a death, not a literal death, 
but a way of describing a radical event or events that shatter all that we know about the world and all the familiar ways of operating within it. I propose that the church meeting on June 2nd was due to trauma and in that trauma perpetuated trauma. Where is God in this? How does one have faith through this? Theologian Shelley Rambo reminds us that divine love is revealed at the point at which it is most threatened. Divine love is revealed at a point in which it is most threatened. Think about it. When 9-11 happened, I was driving to work. My son Joel was in daycare, age three. My first thought was, go back and get him. And I called my husband, what, what do we do, what do we do? I called my parents. I wanted to be with the people I love the most. It is in those times of being threatened that we know what is most important to us. It is these familiar love stories that teach us about divine love. According to Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the French Jesuit priest and scientist, love is a physical structure of the universe. Love is energy of all things being attracted to one another. It is a movement toward a greater complexity and diversity being drawn together, a collective agency. Not objectivism or relativism, but relational knowing. Parker Palmer calls this a, a community of truth, the community of knowing. Community where we are willing to see and to hear and believe the experience of another. It's about remaining in this, this place of middleness. Deb Hess talks about being in the Holy Saturday a little longer. Being Catholic, Holy Saturday is celebrated in her tradition. Most Protestants in this, we're Protestants, by the way. Most Protestants hardly even practice Good Friday, let alone Holy Saturday. Let me explain. Holy Saturday is that day after the crucifixion, before the resurrection. It's the time when scripture says Jesus descended into hell. Jesus faced the forsakenness of hell. Can we linger at Holy Saturday in that dark hope just a while longer? In that uncomfortable place of facing death that pervades life? Can we allow the sadness to be fully felt so that the gladness has a place to dwell. She says people turn from church when they hear banal expressions of disembodied love or cheery voicing of hope where there is no hope. The path through the maelstrom from church, from the path through the maelstrom, the storm or the turmoil, the trauma, is through story. Listening carefully to ourselves, to others, to creation, to the testimony of the heart. Our testimony, our story, challenges us to reimagine reality. Really seeing 
and hearing and believing one another. That's key, believing one another. Relational knowing. That is so hard when your heart is broken open. We just want to leave, find a quiet place to heal. But when you do that, the rest of us suffer without your story. We need a critical consciousness that can only be fed by the diverse stories in our midst. There's a diagram. I'll see if I can explain this to you. I wish I had a slide. Um, this diagram shows two surfaces, okay? So imagine these two surfaces, and they're kind of like a book opened. And then in the middle of this book, opened book, is a cylinder. So, you know, a cylinder's round and it's long, right? So it's a solid shape. And then imagine in this picture, you have a light that's shining on the cylinder and it casts a shadow on this surface. The shadow on this surface is a square. The light shines on the cylinder and then, then the shadow's shining on this surface is a circle. You can actually do this physically, but the point is, we need the people who see a square, we need the people who see a circle, we need to be talking together so that we can understand that it's a cylinder. That's the only way we can do it. If we're all squares or all circles, it's not gonna work. Okay, where am I? <laughs> the way we lean into healing is through narrative, story, testimony. It is a challenge in the midst of trauma to express ourselves, to feel, to dream, and to hear, and to witness to the spirit of these stories. It takes courage and vulnerability to share them. Joseph was in turmoil but he was able to see and hear and believe Mary. Can we see and hear and believe one another? Can we become that collective agency, the community of truth-seeking? I personally think we can. We are already making plans for January, and I look forward to meeting you all there. Advent and Christmas stories sung and told remind us that God sees us. God hears us. And God believes in us. God is with us. Emmanuel. Amen. <laughs>